This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. I think it's fair to say we're enjoying the upside of global warming at the moment, being that it is late in October, and yet here in Northern California we're experiencing a continuance of lovely Indian summer weather. That's something to be joyful for. Except a little rain would be nice, given this wildfire season. We need to kind of put the kibosh on that. One of the stories uh, that's bouncing around the nation's capital this week that has really uh, caught our attention here at Radio Parallax is the fact that there is evidently going to be a large release of documents related to the JFK assassination. This dates back to, well, it dates back to Oliver Stone's movie, quite frankly. At the end of that 1991 classic, information appeared on the screen revealing that mm, records related to JFK's murder had been sealed by the government and were going to remain sealed well into the 21st century. This caused an outraged public to demand that such records be released. I mean, what has the government got to hide? Well, they formulated a thing called the Assassination Records Review Board. George Herbert Walker Bush signed signed the law at the end of his presidency and then did nothing about it. It took Bill Clinton a couple of years to get people appointed to it, but it eventually did go out and seek some records, many of which were obtained, many of which were quite interesting, and many of which we've talked about previously on this program. One of the provisions of that 1992 law was that 25 years later, unless the government could show cause, it should release all the records related to JFK. Well, I think it's fair to say, and it was probably universally agreed, that that's not going to happen. In fact, back in the 1990s, when it was demanded of the Central Intelligence Agency that they produce all the records they had on the alleged assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald, uh, they pretty much just, um, well, didn't. Evidently, assassination researcher, I guess we could call him that, Roger Stone, one of Trump's right-hand men, in fact... We had Roger Stone, a little snippet of him on the program a few weeks back, talking about how terrible John McCain was, etc., etc. Roger Stone, probably more than any other human being, is responsible for convincing Donald Trump that he should run for president. Roger Stone is a political hitman of the highest order. He admits it himself. And he makes no bones about how he is doing everything possible to take out the Democratic Party or, or any, any and all political opposition and promote his and Donald Trump's brand. At any rate, Roger Stone wrote a book some time back which blames the entire Kennedy assassination on Lyndon Baines Johnson, Kennedy's successor. You can be sure of the fact that while Johnson may have had foreknowledge and may have had something to do, well, probably had a great deal to do with the cover-up that followed the actual assassination. It's not generally believed by the reputable researchers that I'm familiar with that he's the prime mover in the case. Nevertheless, that's Roger Stone's position. He bases that in part on what he was told by Richard M. Nixon, no less, he says. And I guess we can be grateful for the fact that Mr. Stone is saying on talk shows that he has convinced the president to release almost all the records. They may keep a few, you know, just for whatever, national security reasons. We shall see what happens uh, this week. We'll know uh, certainly by next week's program what is going to come out 
of this treasure trove. There, there's a lot of stuff that um, they have that we would like to see. I recently went to the Who, What, Why website, that of Russ Baker, to note that he has a list of 3,603 secret documents on the Kennedy assassination. I went to a talk uh, a couple years ago by Jefferson Morley, who runs the JFK Facts website. Jeff Morley is a first-class reporter and has done some wonderful work in this matter. And he talked about some of what it was that we would like to see, things like Lee Harvey Oswald's CIA 201 file, because 201 files contain personality assessments and a lot of information about Mr. Oswald, who appears by all accounts to have been a government agent of some sort. He was not exactly a James Bond, but when he was a 19-year-old kid that defected the USSR, it appears he was acting for the U.S. military. It also appears that he, somewhere, somewhere along the line, he probably was an FBI informant. In the summer of 1963, months before Kennedy's murder, he was convorting around New Orleans in the company of, well, let's just say, flamingly anti-communist, anti-Castro, intelligence-connected people. If you have never seen the movie JFK, I recommend that you do so. A lot, of it, a lot of that is in there, and a lot of it is accurate. There are some people in the Central Intelligence Agency that uh, a lot of folks would like to see the records of. People like David Atlee Phillips, who is known to have been manipulating Oswald before the assassination, or at least, at least manipulating the records pertaining to him. The records on E. Howard Hunt would be nice to look at. We spoke with Mr. Hunt's son, St. John's Hunt, on this program some months ago. We would also refer you to that in our archives, wherein St. John talked about E. Howard Hunt's deathbed confession in the JFK case, wherein he admits that, yes, yes, there was a conspiracy. A lot of folks would like to see the records of William Harvey. Harvey was running uh, basically a, a program that involved assassinations for the Central Intelligence Agency. For more information on Mr. Harvey, we would refer you to our interview with David Talbot. Anyway, there's plenty of interesting stuff that, um, that folks would like to get a gander at. I don't know how much we are going to get before our eyeballs in the immediate future, but hope springs eternal. On next week's program, we'll see if we can't analyze that for you a bit. And for the second half of today's show, we're going to re-air our interview with Jefferson Morley, we spoke to Mr. Morley about his book, Our Man in Mexico, Winston Scott and the Hidden History of the CIA. Winston Scott has a peripheral role to play in all of this. And uh, perhaps not coincidentally, someone Scott was involved with, a man named James Jesus Angleton of the Central Intelligence Agency, is someone else we would like to discuss. And uh, lucky for us, Jeff Morley has now written a book about Mr. Angleton as well. I understand it is currently winging its way to me from an unknown location. Yours truly has decided to go down to Dallas. I've never been to a conference in Dallas talking about the mysteries of what happened to the 35th president, but I am planning to do so next month, and I'm sure I will have some interesting things to tell you after doing so. But for now, let's do our usual fare on this program, starting with things like, well... The days are getting shorter, aren't they? Sunset these days is at about 6.20, um, which is interesting. The shortest day of the year in terms of the earliest 
sunset of the year. Um, takes place between like November 30th and December, I guess it is. Let me check the Old Farmer's Almanac. It's for 13 straight days till December 12th. It stays at 451. But, uh, well, it's really 551 by our current daylight savings time, but we go to standard time in a week or two, and then things really get dark. Not being a morning person, I prefer daylight savings, but oh well. Most people say they just wish they would pick one and stick with it. And by the way, being that this is Radio Parallax, why don't we take a minute to talk about the Old Farmer's Almanac. I usually pick one up every year. We do counsel you, dear listener, to make sure that if you are so inclined and want to grab one of these handy references that you note that it is the Western edition because its origins go back to Boston and the original Old Farmers, which unfortunately is sold still in California, will tell you about the tides in Boston Harbor. Chances are you don't need to know that. Of course, I'll admit the vast bulk of you have no concerns about the tides here on the West Coast either, but you know, if you're going to buy an almanac, get one that's got that in it. That's what I say. I still have the 2017 edition. Usually in November, the the following year, it does uh, show up on your newsstands. This issue talked about the 225 years of the Almanac. It was the 225th anniversary in 2017. And uh, there's some little gems in here I just, I think I just have to share. It starts in 1792 when Robert Bailey Thomas publishes the Farmer's Almanac for 1793, quote, containing... As great a variety as any other almanac of new, useful, and entertaining matter, unquote. So, Mr. Robert Thomas is 20-odd years into this thing in 1815, but he's struck down with influenza. According to the magazine, his Boston printers send a boy to his bedside in Sterling, Massachusetts, for the July weather forecast. (laughs) Reportedly, Thomas tells the boy, tell the printer to print anything he wishes. Thus, the story goes, the printer sets rain, hail, and snow for July 13th, 1816. When Thomas recovers, he's furious and tries to call in every single printed sheet. But he fails. A few escape. But imagine everyone's surprise when, in July of 1816, rain, hail, and snow do, in fact, fall. People experienced the year without a summer. We've talked about this on the program. There was a volcanic explosion down in Indonesia. There was so much volcanic ash in the air that crops failed all over the northern hemisphere. Well, this apparently made Thomas look pretty smart. Noted the magazine, Thomas's almanac moves into the supremacy it has held ever since. You know, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. In 1832, they add the word old on the title saying, quote, our long and continued endeavors to be useful and to please have been crowned with unprecedented success. This is an addendum to a previous statement he made that our main endeavor is to be useful with a pleasant degree of humor. And you know what? Radio Parallax's main endeavor is to be useful with a pleasing degree of humor. So, you know, we're obviously in sync with the Almanac. Also in sync with the Almanac was our 16th president, at least at that time he was a future president, Abraham Lincoln, as is famously reported in history in 1858, defends a man accused of a murder. The killing by slug shot allegedly occurred in the moon's light on August 29, 1857. Citing the Almanac's right-hand calendar page for that day, Lincoln wins an acquittal by noting that his client could not have been identified because the moon ran low and was thus not high enough to cast much light. And they know it's the old farmer's Almanac, it's the only one that year which indicates days in which the moon runs low. 
Now, the Almanac famously makes weather predictions. Uh, I never pay any attention to them because I don't believe anybody can make weather predictions a year in advance, and I don't think any other meteorologist thinks so either. Nevertheless, it's a popular feature of the Almanac. And when back in 1938, editor Roger Scafey omitted the weather forecasts, the circulation fell below 80,000 from a peak of 450,000. The Almanac's history claims that in 1963, in the November Farmer's Calendar essay reads, Night is coming on and murder, perhaps. That was adjacent to the 22nd day. And of course, John F. Kennedy was assassinated on the 22nd of that month. Coincidence? Most assuredly. And it was in 1991 that the magazine launched its Western edition with astronomical and tide tables set to San Francisco Bay. In the year 2010, the Almanac joined Facebook. and In 2016, it had 1.4 million friends. But my question is, how many of them really are friends of the Almanac? It's been my observation on Facebook that the younger the person, the more friends they have. People I know that are 55 or 60 maybe have 150 friends. People I know that are 20 or 22 seem to have five or 600 friends. I don't think so. Mr. McMillan's on record as stating that a true friend is the kind of person that will help you bury a body. Figuratively speaking, of course. Yes, figuratively speaking. All right, let's do a bit of follow-up. We reported on last week's program that the NFL owners were going to get together and decide whether they were going to force their players to stand during the national anthem. I was quite put out to watch the Sunday game between the 49ers and Dallas Cowboys wherein the <laughs> announcer came on to reveal that Jerry Jones has demanded his players stand during the national anthem, whereas Jeb York of the Niners regards this as a First Amendment issue. Yeah, after watching an owner force his black guys to stand, I was hoping Dallas was going to go down, but then I was hoping Dallas was going to go down anyway. They didn't, unfortunately. But by way of follow-up on the meeting, Roger Goodell announced after meeting with the team owners that despite an ongoing barrage of Twitter criticism from President Trump, the NFL owners came to their decision after a day-long meeting during which they spoke with several players about how teams can show support for the players who want to protest social issues. Goodell had indicated last week in a memo that he would prefer all players to stand during the national anthem, following threats by Trump to cut back the NFL's tax breaks. The owners reportedly also discussed how to respond to a legal grievance filed under the league's collective bargaining agreement by former Niner quarterback Colin Kaepernick, who started the kneeling movement last season to protest police brutality. Kaepernick has accused all 32 teams of colluding to keep him out of the league for that protest, which I'm certain is true, but good luck proving it, Mr. Kaepernick. And uh, we're going to try not talk too much about Donald Trump today's program, but I did have to laugh at what Andrew Sullivan said in NewYorkMag.com, which was that Trump's public behavior lately has shown, quote, a sharp decline even from his previously unhinged and malevolent incoherence, unquote. Well, let's see if he gets an invite to the White House or Mar-a-Lago. And you know what? We always like doing the good, bad, and the ugly. Let's do that now. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for censorship. 
with the news that a Mississippi school district has removed Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird from its eighth grade curriculum because, quote, it makes people uncomfortable, unquote. The book, of course, is a harrowing tale of racial injustice in a 1960s southern town. James LaRue of the American Library Association objected to the removal, saying that the classic novel makes us uncomfortable because it talks about things that matter. I don't know. I guess they didn't set up any safe spaces in the library and have enough trigger warnings for some people. You know, we just, we just can't have people be upset by things they read. Idiots. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for remaining calm after police in Bothell, Washington, requested that residents please stop dialing 911 to report that they can't log on to Facebook. Said a police spokesman, we'll move mountains to help those in our community. However, we can't fix Facebook. And it was surely an ugly week last week for trick-or-treaters with the news that creationists in Kentucky have begun distributing fake $1 million bills to be given to kids on Halloween. The bills say, have you ever lied, stolen, or used God's name in vain? The penalty for your crimes against God is death and eternal hell. Well, I guess that would be a trick, not a treat. All I can say to that is, God damn. And yes, I realize I just violated one of the Ten Commandments, and I suppose I'm going to now burn in hell along with everybody else that got trick-or-treat candy in Kentucky. But you know what they say, heaven for the climate, hell for the company. Damned if I want to sit in a cloud making small talk with Jerry Falwell, if you know what I mean. Of course, I'm sure Jerry's burning right now. But anyway, finally, I would have to say that it was both a bad and ugly week for, shall we say, a growing number of Americans, according to the Washington Post. Citing a study at Stanford by psychologist Emmy Seppala, They note that this growing number of Americans are saying that their relationships are being wrecked by a seductive third party. And no, not another person, but something far more eye-catching, the smartphone. The Stanford study revealed that many couples are struggling to balance their love for each other with their love for their iPhones and Androids. And evidently researchers at Baylor University surveyed 140 people and found that almost half had been fubbed by their partner. That's snubbed by phone, I guess, in favor of checking social media, news, or texts on their phone. And that half of those are saying that phone overuse was causing conflicts with their loved one. They note that even if a phone isn't in use, it still causes problems. Studies show that simply having a phone out on a restaurant table, for example, interferes with your sense of connection to your dinner partner perhaps because their eyes keep flicking at the device for new alerts, suggesting that technology is more interesting than you. I'll have to admit it does depend on the you. But writing about this in the week, the managing editor, Theonis Bates, said, I've been both a fubber and a fubby. So I get why this habit is so infuriating and yet so difficult to stop. He goes on to speculate that face-to-face communication can feel passe when there's a whole world to observe and interact with on our gadgets. Tap a screen and you're rewarded with always updating streams of photos and from families and friends and tweets from presidents, breaking news, videos, somebody's breakfast burrito. Yes, and of course, uh, videos of skateboarding cats, porno, etc. We said it, 
I think not six months ago, how it was that 10 years ago when Steve Jobs came out and announced how he was going to have this phone, you could do everything on like a computer. My heart sank, envisioning what we're seeing now. I'll grant you that they're useful little buggers, but um, they are ruining our social lives. And if you don't believe me, how about this little statistic? An epidemic of anxiety and depression is affecting American teenagers. Back in 1985, 18% of incoming college freshmen said they felt overwhelmed by all I had to do in the previous year. But last year, 2016, that number had surged to 41%. Hospital admissions for suicidal teenagers have doubled over the past decade. You think social media has something to do with this? Well, we do. And how about this? Two-thirds of adults worldwide will own a smartphone by next year, according to the media measurement company Zenith. The Netherlands has the highest rate of ownership with 94%. In the U.S., just under 70% of adults are forecast to own a smartphone by 2018. Holy mackerel. You know, I've got a couple stats of the day. The first one is that uh, in all this talk about, you know, mass murder being committed here in America at a rate far greater than any other advanced nation. The math actually does work out to an average of about 300 Americans being shot every day. And I guess I guess I have to accept the statistic that over the past 50 years, more Americans have been killed by guns domestically than in all the wars in our nation's history. Doesn't seem possible, but you keep adding up the numbers, maybe so. I don't know. There were 36,000 firearm deaths in the U.S. in 2015, And if you multiply that times 50, well, you know, you'd be well over a million. And I'm not sure that we've lost a million soldiers throughout our our history. I don't know. Someone has a stat on that. Please send it to us at info at radioparallax.com. But the the flip side stat on that one versus 300 Americans being shot every day of every year. We have the situation in Japan. According to The Economist, crime in Japan has become so rare that police often have nothing to do. In 2015, there were considerably fewer than 100 firearm deaths per day in Japan. In fact, they had fewer than 100 firearm deaths all year in Japan. In fact, they had a lot less than 100. They had one. It is noted that in Japan, firearms are virtually illegal. And uh, here's something I don't understand. Apparently, everybody has uh, gotten... Their knickers in a knot over Harvey Weinstein's or Weinstein's antics down in Tinseltown. Now it turns out that when Bill O'Reilly was doing this sort of thing and, and Roger Ailes, it didn't didn't get a whole lot of traction. Bill Cosby has gotten some attention, as has Harvey Weinstein. So evidently, um, if you're a liberal and you behave badly with women, that'll get you censured. Writing in BuzzFeed.com, Kendall Taggart said, maybe we are reaching a tipping point on sexual harassment. But there is, of course, one glaring exception, Donald J. Trump. During the campaign, more than a dozen women have publicly accused the then real estate mogul of sexually assaulting them. Of course, after he bragged about such behavior on tape. And yet he was elected president anyway. He couldn't stay away from Trump. Darn. Well, as long as we're going to mention him, let's mention the fact that uh, the Trump campaign has been subpoenaed by lawyers representing a former apprentice contestant who has accused President Trump of sexual harassment. They've subpoenaed Trump's campaign for all documents related to the various gropings alleged against him. 
All right, we got about three minutes left. Let's let's bag on tech a little bit more, shall we? Writing in popularmechanics.com, Eric Limer has noted that the paranoid nightmare of a voice assistant spying on you is no longer theoretical. Earlier this month, tech blogger Artem Rusakovsky was given a pre-market Google Home mini smart speaker to review. The device which went on sale for $49 is Google's answer to Amazon's Echo. Apparently, Rustakovsky noted some strange behavior in his device. It seemed to be on all the time. When he checked the, his home mini's logs, turned out the device had been eavesdropping on him 24-7 and sending all of its recordings home to Google. The company blamed a faulty top button for the self-activation. But they note that the problem clearly wasn't limited to Rustakovsky's gadget because the company has since disabled the top buttons on all home minis. By the way, Rustakovsky himself had called people who doubted this kind of technology previously tinfoil hat wearers. But these gadgets are designed to listen all the time. They don't have to be a detective for spying to occur. Recording can be triggered by a hack, an accidental noise, or a software glitch. Ouch! All right, let's close with an anecdote. This is from our Dumb Crooks file. And again, we have the week to thank for this, as, as we do for a great deal of the, what you've just heard. It is the public affairs host in a hurry's best friend. But note of the magazine, a bumbling armed robber who allegedly, allegedly, held up his former workplace, got arrested after his old colleagues recognized him. Police say that Cleveland Willis was wearing a ski mask when he entered the KFC where he used to work and demanded that employees empty the register. One of them recognized the robber's eyes and his voice, according to police, and asked, Cleveland, is that you? The quick-thinking thief replied, no, it's not me. Before he went out and got into his Nissan Altima, the silver Nissan Altima, the same car he used to take to work and drove off, he was arrested soon afterwards. All right, let's take a break. And when we come back, we will uh, re-air our fascinating chat with Jefferson Morley about his book, Our Man in Mexico, Winston Scott, and the Hidden History of the CIA. We very much hope that we will bring Mr. Morley back to this program again next month. In the meantime, we highly recommend his website to you, jfkfacts.org. There are a lot of people in the JFK investigative business who are not reputable, They are excluded from this site. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. What you gonna do? What you gonna do? When- 